Hi and welcome to See in Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark and we hope you've all had a good week. The case that we've got today um, to share with you, Mark told me what the case is but it's not something I was aware of so I'm really looking forward to hearing about this, um, something that I've not heard much about. Let's take it away. As Barbara Johnson and her husband Michael stood outside their daughter Nicola's home, anxiously waiting for the police to arrive on a cold, dark evening 25 years ago next month, they knew something was very wrong. Barbara had been trying to get hold of her daughter all day, but to no avail. When she was told by Nicola's colleagues that she had failed to turn up for work that day, Barbara had repeatedly called her daughter's home phone, only to be met with an engaged tone on every attempt. Mother's intuition kicking in, she telephoned her husband Michael and told him of her concerns. Both worried by this point, they decided to go round to Nicola's house, a house she shared with her new husband Harry, in order to check everything was okay. Barbara had been surprised when Nicola had told her that she wanted to marry Harry. At 27, Nicola was 18 years younger than him, and the two were complete opposites. Nicola was quiet, shy and reserved, whilst Harry was charismatic, loud and colourful. He was a real larger-than-life character. Barbara was fearful of Harry. He had a reputation as a dodgy businessman who mixed with criminals. She had tried to persuade her daughter to leave it a few months after Harry had proposed, but Nicola's mind was made up, and after a whirlwind romance, the two were married. Despite Harry's reputation, he did look after Nicola, and friends said he treated her like a lady. He has been described as a true gentleman, someone who would hold doors open for her, buy her flowers every week and shower her with thoughtful presents. And it appeared from everything I've read that Nicola was genuinely happy in that relationship. Um, So I think, yeah, they were very different, but it was working for them. Mm. Sure, they were in the honeymoon period after five months, but she was very happy despite his reputation and Mm. the age gap. And they do say like opposites attract. and Yeah, I think it's a a, a case, you know, of of that Mm. being absolutely true. So back to that cold February night. Arriving outside their daughter's home in the picturesque market town of Wadhurst in East Sussex, which is about 57 miles southeast of London on the Sussex-Kent border, the couple's fears were compounded when they saw Nicola's car parked outside. Peering through the kitchen window, they could see her keys and handbag on the table. She was clearly home, but the house was in total darkness and an eerie silence descended over it. Barbara said at this moment she knew her daughter was dead. And we've seen that so many times before. I think Mm. Tracy Andrews, um, Lee's mum, she just knew. I mean, that was a police car pulling up outside at 3am on a Monday morning, but she just had that intuition. Mm. She knew that he was dead. When the police arrived, they broke down the door and Barbara and Michael entered the house. Between the kitchen and the living room was a utility room and Barbara remembers seeing Harry's legs sticking out from behind the door. Oh, that, see, that must be awful to walk in and that's what you see first of all. That's horrible. And again, if you didn't know at that point, mm-hmm. you, you're going to know. It's all completely wrong. Mm. She doesn't remember much after that. Interviewed sometime later, she recalls feeling as though she was watching a film like this was happening to somebody else. And again, that's mm-hmm. a reaction that we've heard so often. It's almost like the body goes into shutdown, into yeah. complete shock. And the only way that you can deal with it is by disassociation. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Nicola's father, Michael, was called upstairs by one of the officers and in the bedroom lay his daughter, clearly dead in a pool of blood. 
Nicola and Harry's fate had been sealed just 24 hours earlier when Harry answered the phone as the couple settled down for the evening. Greeting him on the other end of the line was his old friend Steve. Harry had known Steve for the best part of 10 years, so when he asked if Harry would be at home the following morning so the two could discuss a bit of business, Harry didn't hesitate in agreeing to his friend coming round. And so, at around 8.40am on the 10th of February in 1993, Nicola and Harry's nightmare began. Answering the front door to let Steve in, Harry headed towards the kitchen, momentarily turning his back on his friend. Which you totally would. Of course you would, you yeah. I did it to you just. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. This is really giving me chills. Taking his .32 calibre pistol out of his inside coat pocket, Steve calmly pointed the gun at Harry and fired a single bullet which penetrated his back before obliterating his heart. Harry wouldn't have known what was happening. The bullet was of a type that expanded immediately upon impact. Harry was killed instantly. Why has this guy done it? They're old friends. Well, we'll find Mm -hmm. out. Nicola, on the other hand, wouldn't be quite so lucky. And I really debated about whether to say that because nobody's lucky when they get murdered. Mm. But the way in which her life came to an end is far worse than for Harry. Yeah, I suppose if you just, you didn't know it was about to happen and you've got your back to that person and like you said, it was instantaneous, then yeah, of of all the situations, that is possibly like the best of the bad bunch. And as I said, he trusted this friend, he mm-hmm. knew him, he'd known him for the best part of a decade, so he had no reason to be no. suspicious. And yeah, he just naturally let him in, um, walked in front of him, turned his back on him, yeah. walked to the kitchen to put a brew on, you know. Hearing the gunshot from upstairs and most likely in a state of panic by now, Nicola ran from the bedroom to be greeted by Steve, who was, by this time, frantically making his way up the stairs. Before she could even begin to comprehend what was happening, she was shot three times, with one of the bullets completely shattering her jawbone and slicing her tongue in half. Nicola lay there, deathly pale, with blood pouring from her mouth, and although not dead, Steve was satisfied that she was clearly dying and would therefore not be a hindrance to him as he headed downstairs to hunt for cash. Harry was known to keep large quantities of cash at home and would often boast about having tens of thousands of pounds stashed around the house. See, this reminds me um, with the Halloween episode with Vincent Kershaw... When you're flash like that, you are, like, I still no. I'm not trying to victim blame at all, but you are putting out, like, this beacon for anyone who's willing to do something awful to get their hands on that money. I agree. Oh. While Steve ransacked the living room and kitchen, Nicola managed to drag herself back into the bedroom where there was a phone. Having been shot three times, once in the face she miraculously managed to summon the strength to dial 999. However, when she went to speak to the operator, she was unable to talk. The operator asked what service she required and Nicola made what has since been described as an unintelligible sound. Well, yeah, because her tongue got sliced in half. And yeah. She's got a bullet to the face. And can you oh. imagine at that point, she knows that she has been shot, that she's been severely incapacitated, but... Mm. She doesn't even realise at this point that she can't talk. Yeah, she's just trying to do what she knows is the right thing, which is call the police. The operator said pardon, but Nicola wasn't able to answer. All she could muster was a gurgling sound. As was standard procedure at the time, the operator listened for a few moments before placing the call into a non-urgent system where it would be picked up by another operator when there was more time. 
After the call had effectively been placed on hold, the sound of an extension being lifted could be heard, followed by gurgled screams, footsteps as if someone was running up the stairs, and a muffled shot. And then the line goes dead. Steve had obviously heard movement upstairs, realised Nicola was making a call, and had then listened on the phone downstairs before making his way up to the bedroom to finish her off. And I think this is probably the most disturbing part of the case for me, I think he knew after he'd Mm -hmm. shot her those first three times, he knew she wasn't dead. He knew, however, he had incapacitated her enough so that she wouldn't be a hindrance to him. Mm. So he knew that she would have been traumatised, in severe pain, aware of what was happening, and he just didn't care. Mm. Just shows how cold-blooded he was. Yeah. And also, he had the opportunity to ask his friend, you know, are you going to be home at this time? to then maybe find out when they would be away so that he could break in and take the money. He didn't have to go around and shoot them. He could have broken in when they would be away. Talk to your friend about, oh, what's your job now? Your friends aren't going to find that weird that you tell. And then they'll tell you what time they go to work and what their wife does for a living and stuff because it's just conversation. And he could have just broken in and taken the money. He didn't have to do it this way. Yeah, and that's something I'd not thought about during Mm. all of the research. and That's a really interesting point, really valid point. I'd not thought that that would have been the better solution. Absolutely. But then I suppose we don't know... Well, we know that Harry was killed instantly um, as soon as he'd kind of let Steve in, but maybe he... I don't know, maybe he needed to speak to Nicola to find out where the money was kept. I don't know. Mm. I don't know, because he was then ransacking the entire house to look for it. I don't know, it's weird. But yeah, really valid point. Just as an aside at this point, the operator was found to have followed procedure, but was understandably traumatised by the incident Mm. and was subsequently signed off work for several months. Speaking later, she said she'd assumed it was either a hoax call or that a young child had accidentally dialed 999. She said she could hear a gurgling noise and that's what made her place a call into a non-urgent system. She thought it was just the gurglings of like a Mm two-year-old. But of course, it was Nicola trying to talk when her tongue had been cut in half and her jaw blown to bits. It would later come out that Steve had placed a duvet over Nicola's head before shooting her that final time. And I think that's another really interesting point because was that for practical reasons so that he didn't get splashed with brain matter and blood Mm -hmm. or was it for more psychological reasons because he didn't want her looking at him as he finished her off? I I reckon it's more practical because he shot her when she was coming out of the bedroom and she would have seen him and stuff. So I think three shots and then this other shot as well, I think it's practical. I don't think it's psychological. I think I agree. Yeah, Mm. I thought it was an interesting point. But Mm. yeah, I think think you're right. I think it's got to be to do with the practicalities. This is a cold-blooded murderer. He doesn't really care about whether she sees him. Following the gruesome discovery on that cold February night, the police sealed off the property and set about finding out who the hell had done this. Whilst conducting door-to-door inquiries, one neighbour said he did hear shots that morning, but didn't know what they were, so he didn't think much of it. And I know we spoke recently about that kind Mm. of thing happening. I know you're the sort of person (laughs) that if you hear a loud bang or if you hear somebody screaming you'll kind of make a note of the time run outside and see what the hell's going on Mm. and then your fingers are kind of ready and poised to dial 111 whereas I'm the sort of person that's just like meh yeah no I am I think it's from like Agatha Christie reading her novels as a child or something I think I always just ingrained in me I just jump to the most likely explanation Mm. and just ignore it really yeah and whereas I jump to like that's a gunshot Oh, that's yeah. a scream. And then I look and it's children and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> Other neighbours who were questioned said Harry wouldn't have let anybody into his house that he didn't know. 
And this seemed the general consensus amongst everybody the police interviewed. They were convinced from the outset that Harry knew his killer. And obviously he did. It was his old friend Steve. But who exactly was Steve and why did he do it? All will be revealed. Good, because that's what my question is. Due to the lifestyle Harry led, the dodgy business dealings he had and the people he mixed with, the police knew there would be multiple lines of inquiry. To the outside world, Harry was regarded as a legitimate businessman who dealt in high-end used cars. To his business associates and the criminal fraternity with whom he mixed, however, he was regarded as a con man, someone who was happy to screw over a friend, a business partner or any Joe Bloggs off the street who was ripe for a few quid. Whatever the truth, he was clearly successful. Although he was known to exaggerate his wealth, he clearly did all right for himself, driving around in a Rolls Royce, and although he may not have had tens of thousands stashed around the house, he certainly had thousands. Only a few days before his murder, Harry had come into the possession of £13,000 in cash. It was rumoured he had conned an old lady into investing money into a business he was setting up. But when forensics searched the house, the money was nowhere to be seen. Had Harry screwed with the wrong family? Was Steve out for revenge, or was it simply a case of loose lips cost lives, as you said earlier? So, yeah, if you're boasting down the pub that you've got Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of pounds, perhaps it's only a matter of time before somebody takes their chance. Isn't it loose lips sink ships? Pretty sure is the phrase. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it rhymes. I'm pretty sure it's loose lips. I don't know. I, I see, Still means the I same see, thing. Yeah, it, and I think from GCSE history, I feel like it was loose lips cost lives. <laughs> we'll have to look that up. That's not catchy, is it? <laughs> loose lips cost lives. No, but it makes sense. I want to Google it. Can I Google it now? Google it now. You'll have to put like elevator music on the episode. I'll put a whole tone on for this. <laughs> Up with loose lips, sink ships. It's an American English idiom meaning beware of unguarded talk. It originated on propaganda posters during World War Two. See, I knew I'd seen it from these propaganda yeah. posters. We should put one of those propaganda posters up on Instagram. Yeah, but they on the posters it says loose lips might sink ships. They're like it might not, but just be guarded anyway. Oh, fuck's sake! I wish I hadn't bothered. Do you know what? The episode's done. It's finished. <laughs> finished. Off we go. Home time. One line of inquiry the police pursued was in relation to a stolen car ring, which they suspected Harry had been involved in. Shortly before his murder, he had taken possession of a BMW, which he was going to sell on at a profit. Noticing the number plate and serial numbers had been changed, he reported the dealer who had allegedly sold him this car to the police. So was this a grudge killing? Was Harry involved in ringing stolen cars, but the deal had gone sour and he was grassing his associates up for revenge? Ultimately, this line of inquiry drew a blank, but it was just one of many that the police were weighed down with in the pursuit of Harry and Nicola's murderer. Harry knew so many people and had fucked so many people over, it was proving an impossible task to find any credible motive or suspect. At one point, the police thought they had struck gold when they listened to messages on Harry and Nicola's answer machine. 
One of the messages was from a man called Colin who said, Harry, it's Colin. I'm going to come over tomorrow morning and we'll have a serious talk about what you did tonight. I'm pissed off and you're going to pay for it. Oh shit, can you imagine being Colin after sending it, like leaving a message like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. <gasps> Police investigated and it transpired that Colin was an ex-business partner of Harry's. They'd had a serious falling out, but he had an alibi and the message had actually been left two months earlier. It had just never been deleted. And you do sort of wonder why it had not been deleted by Harry. And I think with everything I read about Harry, Mm. the type of person he was, I think he probably kept that on purpose and probably enjoyed Mm. playing that message to himself and having a bit of a laugh at Colin's expense. Perhaps Colin had fucked him over months before and Harry had got his own back. Who knows? In the early days of the investigation, a man named Stephen Young contacted the police to advise that he knew Harry. He explained he was an insurance broker and financial advisor and he'd done a bit of work for Harry over the years in that capacity. He proactively offered to give the police a statement, which is a bit weird, but they weren't overly concerned so they just took his details and said, look, we'll be in touch at a later date if we need Mm. to speak to you again. Ten days into the investigation, the police did get a breakthrough when, during the continued search of Harry and Nicola's home, they found a machine used to record phone calls and I am a bit at this point, 10 fucking days into the search, into the investigation, mm. and they've still not found everything they need to find. Yeah, especially considering they know that the house is the murder scene and everything. You'd think that that house, everything would be looked at with a fine tooth comb. I'm sure they had reasons for it. Mm. I think they did, generally, I think the police did a pretty good job in this case. Yeah, so but that no, does seem like a long them. time, 10 days. Yeah. Harry had started to record some calls just two days before his death. The police weren't able to ascertain why, but I guess there could be many reasons for it. Mm. Perhaps it was for his own protection. Maybe it was some kind of insurance. Um, Maybe he would use it as blackmail at a later date if somebody screwed him over. I don't know. Or perhaps there were more sinister reasons for it. Did Harry know that his life was in danger and that should he be murdered, the police would stand more chance of finding his killer if they had recordings of his phone calls? Does make you wonder, doesn't it? Mm. Police listened to the recordings and managed to eliminate all of them, except one. The call this mystery Steve had made to Harry on the night before he was murdered. Police played the recording to Harry and Nicola's families. However, despite Steve's distinctive voice, neither family recognised this man. In the recording, Steve can be heard speaking in a disturbingly excited manner as he planned his rendezvous with Harry for the following morning. At one point you can hear him saying, I popped over last night, you weren't there. And it's the way he says it in such an upbeat, Mm. nervously excited tone that's really, really disturbing. He knows what he's planning and he's really getting off on that fact. And I think the fact that he said, I popped over the other night and you weren't there, Mm. was Steve planning to murder Harry and potentially Nicola a few days before they were actually killed? Were they bought a couple of days extra by not being at home then? But again, my whole thing of like, why did he, if if it's only about the money which maybe this will 
be the reason maybe it wasn't only about the money but if it was only about the money why didn't he just break in and steal the money when they weren't there like that's what frustrates me so much if it is just about the money what a waste of lives and their house was on a main road but you could access the rear of the house quite Mm. easily it had a gate i think there was almost like a car park to the rear of the house so uh, you know he could have got in without yeah. being seen as long as you look confident people won't think anything of it it's when no. you're acting shifty that people's attention will be kind of bought by that police began the painstaking process of investigating all of the steves harry knew all 85 of them <sighs> it is a common name isn't it well to be fair certainly you know back then that was a really popular name mm-hmm. and harry was the sort of guy that knew hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of people across the whole country. He had contacts everywhere. So I'm not necessarily surprised that he knew 85 Steves. Yeah. Police were able to narrow down their list of suspects, however, as Harry had changed his phone number only a week before his murder. So not everybody had this new number at that time. It would have only been a few close associates, friends and family, people that he would have been dealing with immediately before his death. It was, however, still a cumbersome task, and Detective Inspector Fulcher, the man leading the inquiry, decided to turn to Crime Watch. Yeah. Our good friend Paul at the True Crime Enthusiast will be pleased that Mm -hmm. we're giving them a shout-out because I know he's mounting a campaign to get them back on the air. Um, If you don't know what Crime Watch is, I know we've mentioned it a few times on this show. Um, It's a BBC programme that's not on air any longer. It was on air for about 30 years and the programme would go out live once a month pretty much and appeal for the public's information in solving murders and other crimes. It was presented by the late Jill Dando for a period of time. Um, Head over to episode four for information on her murder Mm. we covered it there i feel like we talked about crime watch quite a lot on that episode actually and sort of what they did and and how they did it so yeah it's definitely a good one to go back and have another listen to the man on the recording this steve had as i said a distinctive voice and di fulcher just knew that if he could get that recording played on crime watch Mm. somebody out there would recognize that voice and offer a name to the police and so often they would play a voice recording and then it's, oh yeah, I know that person because you, that is something so unique to a person and you just know it. You just be like, oh my God, I can hear so-and-so from down the road or or even the person's husband or brother and they'd realise it was that person. I think you're right. This was a key piece of evidence. Whilst they weren't necessarily saying that this Steve was the murderer, the person responsible. You know, the public knew that this was a really important person, Mm -hmm. potentially a suspect, that if they knew of him, they would have to come forward with his name. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, a voice is like a fingerprint, isn't Mm -hmm. it, in many ways? Turning to experts, D.I. Fulcher was actually able to isolate Steve's voice and also enhance it in preparation for the recording being aired on Crime Watch. The segment was also to feature a reconstruction and an appeal for information on Harry and Nicola's murders. On the night of the Crime Watch appeal, a relative of Steve's recognised his voice when the recording was played. Clearly concerned, she called him at home and told him to put Crime Watch on, telling him that they had just played a recording of a phone conversation Harry had had the night before he was murdered. This relative told Steve that it sounded like him and asked whether he had called Harry on the night before he was murdered. Steve protested his innocence to her, but when she watched the Crime Watch update show later that night and heard the recording again, she was convinced. 
Once again, she called Steve and told him that it sounded like him, that he had a distinctive voice that people would be contacting the programme to name him. She urged him to contact the police himself so he could at least be eliminated from the inquiries. That's really fair of her because she obviously doesn't think he's done anything, but she's like, you need to get your your side of this straight away so they don't suspect you. I think that's quite nice of her. Mm. Like if I heard you on Crime Watch, I'd be like, Mark, I know you didn't do it, but you need to contact them and get your name cleared. I would really want you to contact me and do that, but yeah, I actually like, thought that it was a bit harsh of her. I thought, you know, if she had any suspicions, the police were appealing for anyone mm. who recognised that voice to contact them directly. So, you know, I think she should have contacted the show immediately without informing Steve. What could have happened is she informed Steve. Oh, and, tell, and he up. does want yeah. Definitely, but I think that shows that she has no suspicions of him. Yeah, she's literally ringing him to be like, "Tell them your alibi," because yeah, she it. believes yeah. he's got one. Yeah, and I think you know she knows that people, other people, are going to recognise his voice and yeah. contact the program. I think I don't know who she was. She could have been a sister. She, she must have been somebody very close to him. This is the problem with doing the podcast, Mark. If you're going to ring someone before you kill them, everyone who listens to this is going to go, "Oh, I know that voice." Yeah, we're fucked now. Mm-hmm. Good oh, job we're not planning anything. Yeah. <laughs> On the night of the appeal, police received over 160 calls from the public, some of them naming Steve as Stephen Young, the same Stephen Young who had contacted police mm. uh, to offer a, a statement. No, but then they were like, "That's we wondered why you were being so weird at the time. And so the following morning, Stephen Young, a 35-year-old father of two from Tunbridge Wells in Kent, went to his local police station with a self-typed statement explaining that whilst the voice on the recording may have been his, he was not the murderer. This guy was just desperate to Mm. go to the police with a statement. And again, we've seen that loads with killers who caught the police's attention. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Yeah. When officers interviewed him, he admitted he was in Wadhurst on the morning of the murders and that he had visited Harry and Nicola's house. He said he had arranged to meet with Harry that morning as per the telephone conversation the previous evening, as Harry had previously said to him that if he had any clients who were selling their car, that he should contact Harry and he would cut him in on any profits from selling the car on. Steve said he had a client who was looking to sell a Porsche and he had previously given Harry the details, but Harry had never made contact with that client. Then, as his story goes, as the price came down, Harry became more interested and suggested he arrange a meeting so they could discuss it further. Steve went on to say that he arrived at the house at 8.20am, knocked on the front door, however there was no answer and so he left. At this point, the police knew he was either the murderer or at the very least at the scene when the murders took place. I know, he should have said like he got there at 9am or something. What an idiot. The police were granted a warrant to search both Steve's home and office whilst they questioned him. They questioned him as to why he had not come forward at the time of the murders. After all, he was there right before they happened. He could have seen something of significance. However, he said he had not seen anything that could have assisted their inquiries and just wanted to put the whole thing out of his mind and forget it. And I suppose his um, kind of get around that is, actually, I did contact the police and I was told you'd take a statement, but nobody got back to me. So actually, I did try. He could have probably contacted the police and said, I want to offer a statement Mm. because I was there on that morning. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as far as he was concerned, he had nothing to do with it. He had left Wadhurst before the murders had taken place and just needed to rule himself out of the inquiry so the police could find the person responsible. 
He said he had no choice but to come forward following the release of the telephone recording as he knew people would recognise his voice and jump to the wrong conclusion. Police asked Steve what car he drove. They had obtained CCTV footage of the main road linking Tunbridge Wells, where Steve lived, to Wadhurst, the site of the murders. They knew he would have had to travel on that road in order to get to Harry and Nicola's house that morning, and if his story was true, they would surely see him driving away before the murders took place at around 8.50 that morning. The police could be specific with the time of the murders due to the call Mm. Nicola had made to the emergency services. Steve advised the police he drove a white VW Golf, and they set about checking the CCTV footage looking for his car. He said he'd driven into Wadhurst that morning, arriving at around 8.20 and leaving at about 8.40. However, the police couldn't find the car around those times, so they widened their search and found him driving away from the scene of the crime after the murders had taken place. Mm -hmm. Police questioned Steve about his financial situation at the time of the murders. He knew the police would have gone through his finances with a fine tooth comb at this point, and he had no option but to admit that his business was struggling with debts at this time. He had been using clients' insurance premiums to cover his expenses rather than placing them into a separate account as per the insurance regulations his business would have been bound by. And the evidence was really stacking up against him when police found a paying-in receipt for £6,000 in cash that had been paid into his business account the day after the murders. Mm. And this is from a guy who had no money. Yeah. The final nail in the coffin for Steve was the fact that he had a mini arsenal of guns in his home. And whilst he had the relevant firearms licences for these weapons, he was clearly a gun enthusiast. Not only did he own guns, he was also a member and treasurer of the 41st Kent Home Guard Rifle Club. This was clearly someone who knew how to fire a gun and cause serious harm. Although the gun used to kill Harry and Nicola wasn't amongst his collection, police did find ammunition that would ultimately link him to their murders. With police now certain they had got their man, Steve was charged with a double murder and remanded in custody whilst he awaited his trial. Police nicknamed him the Iceman because of his cool demeanour. It didn't matter what damning evidence they threw at him, he remained calm and collected, coming up with one stupid excuse after another, all the while protesting his innocence. You must get to a point where you just think, do you know what, it's gone on too far, they've got me. Yeah, I would. I'd just be like, oh, fine, I give up. Mm -hmm. When the families of Harry and Nicola learned of Steve's true identity, this mystery man on a recording now had a face and a surname, it meant nothing to them. Harry's brother Tom was the only family member who knew of him, and that was only as an acquaintance from the pub. Michelle, Nicola's sister, looked him up in the telephone directory, this was in 1993, and Mm -hmm. saw he was a local man, but she had no idea who he was. Steve and Andrew Young's trial began in February 1994 at Hove Crown Court and lasted for three and a half weeks. Presenting his case for the prosecution, Michael Lawson QC described Steve Young as a gun enthusiast. He said he was a desperate man who had committed murder with the intention of robbing Harry Fuller of cash to pay crippling personal and business debts amounting to nearly £100,000. Young, who by this time had changed his story slightly, claimed he had found Harry and Nicola dead when he had called round at their cottage that morning. 
He said as he left the cottage, he saw a mystery face at an upstairs window and claimed he had later received a number of threatening phone calls which had persuaded him not to tell the police what he saw. In a way, it's kind of plausible. Perhaps he walked into the house, stumbled upon this double homicide, this horrific scene, and had PTSD and had kind of blanked it out of his mind. Nah. Okay. He's making up excuses. (laughs) They could check his phone record. They'd know that he didn't get any sort of phone calls over the weeks from the same number that was threatening him, stuff like that. Also, what a coincidence. Coincidences yeah. are just, yeah. Yeah, they're not they're not really um, highly regarded in a court mm, case. I just, oh, he just seems like he's trying to find any excuse to get away with it. I kind of am realising, though, with somebody like Harry, if he had have just robbed him, he'd have been in a, a really dodgy position, like quite a precarious position, because... Harry might realise it was Steve who did it and then go after him if he is this dodgy character. Or at so least Harry would have he... known the right people to go yeah, after him. So yeah, so maybe that's why he felt the only way was to get rid of Harry to take the money rather than take the money and leave Harry there to perhaps come after him. And I suppose it's we're looking... It's the move of a desperate man, isn't it? Someone who's in this much debt. Yeah, and I suppose we're looking at psychopaths. So, you know, as far as Steve Young is concerned, Harry and Nicola are just people in the way Mm. of his ultimate aim of getting money. So he doesn't really care about their feelings, the fact that he has to kill them. That's just a necessary act to achieve what Mm -hmm. he needs to achieve. So the jury heard all of the evidence throughout the trial and Young was found guilty of both murders and sentenced to life in prison. He was told he must serve a minimum of 20 years before he could be considered for parole. In his sentencing remarks, Mr Justice Blofeld told Young, The jury has convicted you of terrible and horrible offences. Two human beings were shot down. The circumstances relating to the deaths are totally horrific. The precise circumstances relating to the death of Nicola will remain in everyone's minds for years to come. Steve Young was still protesting his innocence as he was led away to the cells, shouting to the judge, I did not do it, my lord. After the trial, Nicola's family said it was a strange feeling when Young was convicted. It didn't really change anything for them. Nicola and Harry were gone and would not be coming back, but they were at least relieved that Young was locked up and that he couldn't do any harm Mm. to anybody else. Speaking outside court, Tom Fuller, Harry's brother, said the verdict was a great weight off the family's shoulders. Detective Chief Superintendent Graham Hill, who had taken part in the inquiry, said, Outwardly, Stephen Young was a very responsible family man who was well-liked by his clients and the community where he lived. There was a totally different side to him, and it is that side that very few people knew about. These were cold, callous and calculated murders, and all the evidence is they were pre-planned. Which, yeah, no Mm. shit. Just one month after the trial, the News of the World newspaper, which is not in existence anymore, Mm. published a story with the headline, Murder Jury's Ouija Board Verdict. The report quoted the youngest member of the jury, a 24-year-old man named Adrian, as saying that four of the jurors had tried to consult the spirits of the dead (laughs) whilst locked overnight in the old ship hotel in Brighton. As the other jurors slept, these four had sat on the floor around a Ouija board they had made from a piece of paper and a hotel room wine glass. They each put a finger on top of the glass and asked a spirit to guide over the letters of the alphabet and the words yes or no. One juror, a man named Ray, took charge of addressing the spirit, which identified itself via the glass as Harry Fuller. 
Ray asked, who killed you? And the glass spelt out, Stephen Young done it. I had to do a bit of a Cockney accent for that. Honestly, like, I'm not a complete disbeliever, but really, your jury, you should be using actual evidence to make an informed decision. Ugh, that really annoys me. Good point, well made. That really pisses me off. What a bunch of twats. Ray, this juror, said, how? And the glass spelt out, shot. As the jurors discussed what they should do, the glass spelt out, vote guilty tomorrow. The report went on to state that by the end of the seance, some of the jurors were crying. The group retired to their rooms and agreed not to tell the others what they had done. When the story came out, there was a thorough investigation into the jury's behaviour, and off the back of this, Stephen Young's original conviction was overturned, and he was granted a retrial at the Old Bailey in London. Fortunately, the judge had the foresight to remand him in custody whilst he awaited his new trial, which took place eight months later. Once again, the families had to sit through the harrowing evidence and at a huge cost to the taxpayer, the trial concluded with exactly the same Mm. verdict as before and the same sentence for Stephen Young. Good. I did get a bit worried then, Mark, I'm not going to lie. And I did do some research around jury misbehaviour and it's shockingly common. So you're horrified that Mm -hmm. they didn't look at the information in an objective way to make an informed decision, but it's really common. A recent study in the UK found that 12% of jurors in high-profile cases had actively searched online for information relating to the case that they were a jury on. Honestly, I've never done jury duty and it's something that I would love to take part in it's oh, I would I think love would to do it so, it's such an my sister part. did it one of my sisters did really yeah it's such a, a really like it's a privilege honor. really yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely agree without sounding wanky it is a privilege as a <laughs> wanky. but do you know what I mean it's a privilege yeah, as well, a UK citizen like, yeah. to um to go there and play your part in bringing somebody to justice if that's how it should be or yeah. clearing somebody yeah exactly and I think to to fuck with the system is completely mm, unfair yeah but people that have done that have definitely been um, sent to prison. Mm-hmm. They've been found guilty of yeah, perjury. Good. The court system takes a very dim view of it. So mm-hmm. at least that's on, on our side, yeah, being definitely. the moralists that we are. <laughs> a guy called Jeremy Gans, who is a criminal law professor in Australia, has actually written a book about this very subject and talked extensively about this case mm. and others where the jury's behaviour has resulted in a retrial and even conviction for perjury. Mm-hmm. He believes that this is really interesting because he believes that jury misbehaviour um, is actually potentially as a result of the often difficult and harrowing information that a jury have to listen to. So it's almost like a, a coping mechanism mm. that they will almost misbehave. So they might try and be a bit lighthearted and, and be a bit stupid to try and lighten the mood because mm. it's very dark, the information that they're mm. hearing. I know he's a psychologist or whatever, but no. If they're being twats, they're just twats. Yeah. In my it's opinion, a, it's in my an opinion interesting... if you're that much of an idiot that you're going to possibly Google something of a trial that you're supposed to be an impartial juror for, you're, you either haven't listened to your instructions at the very beginning or you think you're better than the court system. But then there was a, you know, he talks in his book about a trial in Australia where half the jury were 
doing Sudoku throughout mm-hmm. the trial and, and that ha- that resulted in a retrial. Yeah. And you do wonder, yeah, maybe that was as a result of boredom. Maybe it was a, a way, a coping mechanism Possibly, of them yeah, sort of disassociating true. themselves from that situation yeah. and not having to listen to some of that harrowing evidence. But equally, that's your job. That's what you yeah, signed up for as a British citizen or an Australian citizen. Yeah. It's what you've got to do. And I do get that a little bit because I think for someone like us or the people who listen to podcasts like this, we are interested in crime. We're interested in the nuances of the legal system. So it would be interesting to us and we perhaps would be able to listen to some of those horrible facts without being as impacted as someone else who perhaps has been yeah. quite sheltered. So I do get that, but also, yeah, no. They are offered support as well yeah. afterwards. Oh, if it's a particularly harrowing case, yeah. they would most likely be told they'll mm-hmm. never have to do jury duty again. We've seen a few cases like yeah. that, haven't we, where the jury have been told because of... So like the... um Elaine O'Hara case the jury were told once you sit on this court you will not have to sit in a jury ever again and ultimately the biggest fucking privilege is that you don't have to go to work I know whilst you're on jury duty yeah pretty uh, sure they pay well, you don't, lunch you don't actually have to be paid by your employer no if you do it but generally they but would they would or you get at least statutory because you have to be off work There's you no get choice. something and yeah. you would get expenses as well I'm pretty sure they pay for your lunch as well and you know what I'm like with food you'll do anything for a free lunch <laughs> yeah, I would <laughs> I'm saying no more. I'll only have to edit it out. (laughs) What I would love to do, what we should do, Mm -hmm. is go along to a Crown Court and sit in for a day Mm -hmm. on a a juicy court case. Yeah, there's um, the podcast Murder Mile, which sadly is going to be stopping. Why? Michael's Michael's put out a thing, I'll show you on Facebook. Um, But he was talking about where the best courts to go to are, where you'll hear the best things. So I'll find that episode and listen back and we'll have a little day trip to London. Mm, that sounds good. As for Steve Young then, he has always maintained his innocence and he has since mounted a further unsuccessful appeal. For the families, the agony lives with them and continues to affect their lives in every way. Michelle, Nicola's sister, said she can't accept that she is gone and she said the only way she can cope is by pretending she isn't dead and that one day she will be able to speak to her again. Barbara, Nicola's mother, sadly suffered a heart attack a few months after Steve's first appeal. Fortunately, she had a double heart bypass and survived, but the toll it took on her and her husband's health was immense. A year after Steve Young was convicted, Michael, Nicola's father, suffered a stroke that left him paralysed on the right side of his body, requiring intense therapy to help him walk and talk again. Mm. And I don't mean to harp on, but we've seen it time and again, Mm -hmm. where parents of a child, grown up or otherwise, who has been murdered, it takes a massive toll on their health. Quite often they don't live a long life. Um, yeah. So I'm not surprised that, you know, this happened in, in this case. I don't know if her parents are, are still alive. I hope they are. But, um, but yeah, you know, it took an immense mm-hmm. toll on their health. This, like, stress is such a big thing. It can affect so much in, in your body. So, yeah. In a further twist of the knife, from information I looked at in the National Archives when the judge was justifying his sentencing of Young, it appears that he was a model prisoner with excellent reports who was enjoying several different courses that the prison he was in Mm. had to offer. Furthermore, he appeared in an episode of the BBC Snorefest 
Songs of Praise, six months after he was jailed in a special edition of the programme where a section was filmed at Wormwood Scrubs Prison. Singing along and smiling away, he was sat in the front row and Nicola's father saw it and the BBC Mm. hadn't issued any kind of warning and obviously, you know, you can imagine seeing that would would be heartbreaking and you almost, again, get the impression that Steve Young is sat there in the front row singing a Lord to the the Lord Mm. Jesus Christ, loving life, but also smirking because he knows knows he's on telly, Mm -hmm. he knows that the victim's families are going to see him and that he's having the last laugh. Yeah. So I can't do a Bethan here and end on a good note, which you always do. But that, that brings to an end the, the tragic murders of Harry and Nicola Fuller. That was a really interesting case. And what a horrible man this Steve guy was. And I don't know whether he's been released because he was due to be released, I think, in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, or like and that he could have applied for parole. He could have poli- yeah. applied for parole, wow. but he was a model prisoner. So he probably would have been. When he was on remand, so he probably would have been. So he may be out there. But it's really hard to find information on prisoners that have been released. I think that's probably for very good reason. I guess so. I guess you know, maybe there's like an embargo on the press reporting. Yeah. Sometimes if it's not necessarily in the public interest, they won't report on it. So, so if it's a massive case like Tracy Andrews, they can report yeah. on it. But and maybe also they, can't. they might just not be bothered enough. There might not be like an appetite for that. See, that yeah. was 25 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, like for people who are still invested in the case, it would be important. But the press will always look for the story that's going to get them the most people of course. buying it. So of course. So we hope you found the episode interesting too. And as Bethan said at the top of the show, please the reach top. <laughs> Yeah. Please reach out to us on all the usual social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Search for Seeing Red, a UK True Crime podcast. You can also head over to our Patreon page. We've got a number of bonus episodes there and you can support the show for as little as about two quid a month. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.